Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Timothy 1, 6-8 and 1 Peter 1, 3-9 and 13-16. 2 Timothy reads, For this is the reason I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me of his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. All honor to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for it is by his boundless mercy that God has given us the privilege of being born again. Now we live with a wonderful expectation because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. For God has reserved a priceless inheritance for his children. It is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And God in his mighty power will protect you until you receive this salvation, because you are trusting him. It will be revealed on the last day for all to see, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though it is necessary for you to endure many trials for a while. These trials are only to test your faith, to show that it is strong and pure. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, And your faith is far more precious to God than mere gold. So if your faith remains strong after being tried by fiery trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him, you trust him. And even now you are happy with the glorious, inexpressible joy. Your reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. So think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the special blessings that will come to you at the return of Jesus Christ. Obey God because you are his children. Don't slip back into your old ways of doing evil. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you to be his children is holy. For he himself has said, you must be holy because I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we come to the third and final message on our theme this year, which is fanning the flame, proclaiming the gospel with power, love, and self-discipline. We've talked about doing so with power. We talked last week about doing so with love. It's based on the passage that you see. Go to the next one there, Stephen. 2 Timothy 1, 6, and 7, this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Now, I've got to be honest, it's easy for a preacher to riff on, on power and love, but what about self-discipline? And is that really more uh, inward-centered? Not by any stretch. Really, it's talking here about a self-discipline uh, that's really more others-directed. Paul makes that very clear with the word he uses and uh, just throughout the rest of that letter. So again, it's a self-discipline that is others Directed. Now, the word there for self-discipline, sophronismu, it only appears there uh, in the entirety of the Bible. So you wonder, you know, are there other words that you can connect it with? And there's one that you can connect with it quite easily because it's talking about a self-discipline that sets you apart for God's exclusive service. So it really points to a word that you and I sang about a minute ago, the song holiness, talking about holiness. Now, Get ready because we're going to dig deep into First Peter here because really when we're talking about holiness, Paul talks about that a little bit. Peter in just his two epistles talks about it a lot. Let's go first of all to First Peter 1, 15 and 16. 
It says, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Now, I've got to be honest. Holy and holiness is one of those words that I used to cringe at. Just talking about, you know, me being holy, even when students years ago, and I would go to the you know, the, the student-led worship over at Sanford, they would sing that song, holiness, holiness is what I long for, holiness is all I need, holiness, holiness is what you want from me, and I'm thinking, I'm not holy. You know, to me, to be real honest for a long, long time until I studied the Word, I didn't like it because it's, it, I just, you know, what conjured up in my mind was holier than thou, and that, that was a big turnoff. If anybody starts acting that way, you want to leave the room as quickly as possible. But the thing is, it's talking about much more than just uh, uh, moral uh, standards. Talking about much more than that. It's interesting, Peter is quoting from Leviticus. Do you see where it says, you must be holy because I am holy? Peter's quoting from Leviticus. It, It appears in Leviticus three times. But what he's talking about there is not holy persons, but holy things. Do you hear me on that? He's talking not about persons being holy, but things being holy. It talks there about a table that's holy, uh, pans and pots that are holy. Now, how does that work? I mean, because if you think of holiness just in terms of morality, what's a moral table? What's an immoral table? You know, strange. But the thing is, you study it in Leviticus, what it's talking about is these objects, these things have been set apart exclusively for God's use. You take a table to the temple, and the priest decides to use that, whatever, to offer sacrifices, to worship, uh, uh, to, to burn, uh, you know, something that, so that smoke would go up, anything like that. It was set apart at that point for service exclusively to God. So that's really what the Old Testament understanding of holiness is when it's applied to us, that you and I have been set apart for God's use, exclusively so. So again, it's a matter of us belonging to God, wanting to belong to God, being used by Him. Now again, it doesn't make us any better than anybody else in the world, not by any stretch, but hopefully when people see our surrenderedness, our yieldedness, they see within us a desire to belong to God and to be set aside for service to Him, people are touched by that because they see our passion for that and hopefully they will want to belong to Him as well. And really to do that effectively, you've got to have self-discipline, self-discipline that is others-directed. Now, in what ways do we need to be self-disciplined in order to be holy? I mean, give give us some uh, breakdown here. And it's really in verse 13. Go to the next verse there. It says this, and we're going to plant here for a while and unpack this. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in the world. You really see all three of these right there. First of all, what do I need to do to prepare myself and be disciplined toward holiness? First of all, be alert to opportunities. Be alert to opportunities. Be ready for action. Be ready for opportunities to proclaim God's love. Now, it says there, prepare your minds for action. It literally says in the Greek, gird up your loins for action. Now, what does that mean? Gird up your loins, or sometimes it says gird up the loins of your mind for action. Now, girding up your loins in the Old Testament, some of you might know this, but uh, way back when, both men and women wore long, flowing robes, right? But sometimes, at some moments when they had to spring into action, whether they were being attacked by an enemy or there was some crisis going on, they would quickly gird up their loins. What that means is they would take that long robe and lift it up and tuck it into their girdle, okay, or it'd be a belt. 
And they would do that so they could move more swiftly, do what they needed to do, and they could do it at a moment's notice. So they were ready for whatever, whenever, just in an instant. Well, we need to be alert in the same way to have our minds ready to go in action. You know, just this past week, we uh, passed out the Fan It Forward cards. Hope somebody got a chance to pass that along. If you haven't been here, what uh, this says, on one side it says, thank you for letting us fan the flames of God's gift by offering a sm- this small act of kindness. Have a blessed day, the Brookwood Baptist Church family. Bottom line, it's kind of a pay it forward thing, but these are called Fan It Forward cards. And uh, you do some act of kindness and hand this to the person or get it to the person uh, in some way, maybe even indirectly, that lets them know that it was someone from Brookwood who simply wants to offer some grace gift, no strings attached. And uh, hopefully you were able to do that before uh, this morning at some point this week. And we'll, we'll talk about that again in just a second. But you've got to be alert uh, in order to find those times. Now, now it was funny. Someone this past week, and I don't know if you remember last week, I asked you to let Mary Jane know via email or by phone calls what creative thing you did. And we got a lot of answers, which was cool. A lot of you were just mobilizing on this, which is great. There was one person who very honestly, and they're in the first service, and they said, yeah. And he emailed me and he said, well, uh, Pastor, I, I went and had a workman come and work at my house and then uh, I paid him the regular charge, and then I gave him a little extra just as a grace gift. He said, and I handed him the card, and, and I, you know, we said goodbye. And he said, I didn't even think to talk to him and to explain why I was doing this. And as he said, and I'll quote, he said, I should learn anticipation from this. Well, that's what we're talking about, being alert to this. Somebody even in this search just told me a few minutes ago, that they did one of these wonderful acts of kindness, forgot to give him the card, but that, you know, at least they spoke with him and everything. So again, it's just a matter of us being more alert for these opportunities to fan the flame of God's love in the lives of others. Now, sometimes God makes it easy, and I'm going to share this and be transparent, and you can believe me or not believe me, but it did happen. Uh, just yesterday, I'm, I'm reviewing the, the message here, right about right here, where, where we are right now. And I remembered what the person in the first service said about, you know, this, guy, this workman came over. Well, I'm going to confess, I hadn't gotten rid of my card uh, by, by 11 o'clock yesterday morning. And I kept, to be honest, I put, and I'm not trying to look, to be holy myself, but, but I had some clothes in the car that I was going to give to this homeless guy that I've given stuff to before. And uh, because he gets cold out there sometimes, I had some sweaters and stuff. And, but he never showed up. I think he was like playing games with me because he knew I was going to give him this thing. But anyway, never could find him. And so uh, I was wondering what to do. And I was looking at this and I thought about the workman that this guy told me about. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be nice if Mike showed up? Now, uh, three, almost three weeks ago, January 19th, because I've got the text I sent uh, on the phone here, I texted a guy named Mike who always comes once a year and uh, cleans our gutters. And I texted him saying, hey, uh, get, you know, get hold of me when you can. Uh, let's set up a time for you to come clean gutters. And I remember, you know, at three weeks, never heard from him. I thought, well, I'll have to text him again. Never heard back. I'm sitting here at this point thinking, gosh, I've got to use this thing. What am I going to do? Wouldn't it be nice if he showed up as a workman and he could work on it? And, and I promise you, in less than two minutes, I hear the rattling of a ladder outside, and I'm like, what's that? And then the doorbell rings, and our beagle goes nuts, you know, like he does when there's, you know, guests that we weren't, you know, ready for. And I go to the front door, and it's Mike. And he's like, I'm ready to do your uh, uh, gutters now. And I said, good, and I've got something for you. And uh, so at the end of it, I was finally able to give him this and explain it to him, and uh, it was a great, 
conversation that we had. Now, sometimes God makes it very easy that way. That kind of stuff doesn't happen to me all that often, but sometimes he makes it easy, but for the most part, it's rather rare because you and I need to do our part to be alert to those opportunities where we can reach out to others as well. You've got to be alert to opportunities, but we also need to be level-headed. It says, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. That means be level-headed. You've got to capitalize on these opportunities and they can be awkward. We talked about that last week, by the way. I heard from multiple people who were here last week, and many of you said, boy, when you talked about we need to be able to be more awkward, uh, that really struck a chord with you, which I thought was kind of interesting. But it's like we need to be less comfortable all the time. And that's true. But in order to find ourselves in those awkward points where we're really proclaiming the gospel in some way, we've got to have a level head about it. Now, Anybody who's had a ministry class uh, with me over at Sanford, one of the things I always say is uh, one of the great signs that you are a professional minister is being at peace with the awkward silences that come along, like in a hospital room, like at the graveside, like in a counseling situation. You're a non-anxious presence, and the awkward moments, you're not trying to fill it in with words, and you're not you know, having your stomach churning, anything like that. You just kind of let it happen as it needs to happen, and trust that the Spirit's going to give you words to speak, and so on. And I thought, wow, you know, being at peace with those awkward silences. But then I've thought this week, all the more we need to be at peace with those awkward moments when we can share the gospel with others. All the more important. You know, are you going to trust that he can speak through you, even if you feel like you're stumbling through it? Do you think that perhaps the power of the Spirit can work through you when you're sharing the gospel with other people? And indeed, he can. But do we trust that? The thing is, we've got to make ourselves less comfortable. Just this past week, we were uh, doing a mock interview. Three of us religion professors were doing a mock interview with um, a Sanford student who is up for a very prestigious fellowship. It's a theology fellowship, and, and she's an amazing young lady, brilliant, uh, just going to be an amazing uh, world changer. And uh, I remember we were going through it, and she was just answering everything so beautifully. My last question to her was this, what does the church today need more than anything else? And immediately she said, more consistent discomfort. More consistent discomfort. I thought that was a great answer. And, and that's what we need. We need to be more willing to get out there and more consistently be fools for Christ, as Paul would say. Now, let me ask you this, because a lot of it is, oh, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. Don't you think, now, I'm going to sound like a real preacher going around here, and I'm not wearing a carnation, I don't have white shoes on or anything, but don't you think that the evil one is working with you there? If you, oh, I feel uncomfortable, I feel a little awkward. Don't you think that a lot of this awkwardness might stem from him? Don't you think? Do you think the evil one wants you out there proclaiming the love of Jesus to other people in a way where the fan of the Holy Spirit is flamed from within you? You know, capitalizing on, on your opportunities to share the gospel with other people? He doesn't want that. Which is why Peter says, be alert, but also be level-headed. Aren't those the two things you need to be if you're going to war? Be alert, but be level-headed as you engage in battle. Peter knows that. In fact, he uses that imagery further. If you go to uh, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he uses these very same words again about being alert and exercising self-control. It says, stay alert. There's the alert word. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him. The, the, the uh, verb stand firm there is the same word that was used earlier uh, in chapter 1 about having a level head, exercising self-control. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering as you are. 
And think of that second part, by the way. Read that second sentence again. Or maybe it's the third one. Third one. You know, we're, we get uptight about being just merely awkward in a social context. But maybe we should think about our brothers and sisters all across this planet, many of whom don't just deal with awkwardness, they deal with violence, with terrorism, with the possibility of being highly taxed because they are Christians, with torture, the possibility of torture, persecution, death, whatever it is. Let's let them inspire us to at least have the slight audacity to make ourselves just a little bit uncomfortable to bring the gospel to people who so desperately need it. So those are two ways to be holy, be alert, be level-headed. That's one way you can overcome the devil and not be undermined by him as you share the gospel. Paul tells us, again, in those places of discomfort, be alert, be level-headed. But there's one other thing he tells us to do. Let's go back to our key verse, verse 13. It says, prepare your minds for action, be alert, exercise self-control, level-headed. And then he says this, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. That's the third one. Be settled in your hope. Be settled in your hope. And it says what? Put all of your hope in him. We sang earlier about Christ alone, that that we put our hope in him. And and it's really not so much an emotion, though it involves emotion. It's really an imperative. You know, Peter is so confident that Christ is there and will always be there for you, and one day you'll see him face to face. He literally says that grace is already on its way to you. That's what it's saying. You can almost see it. It's almost in your grasp. So where are you placing your hope? Election season, is it the government? Is it the economy? Is it scientific advancement? God help you if you're putting your ultimate hope in any of the above. Christ alone, as the song says. So how how settled are you in your hope? Because I think this third one is the most important one. You can be alert and ready to share the gospel, or you can you know, uh, uh, exercise self-control, but if you don't have this ultimate hope, what's the good of it? You know, only then can you really flame the spirit of God within you. And it's especially important as you face trials and tests, all the more reason to be settled in your hope. And Paul makes, or excuse me, Peter makes it clear that this hope is the key. And he acknowledges that suffering is going to come to every believer. I've always found this is an interesting verse. Go to the next one there, verse 6. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a while. Does it say you might? endure trials? What does it say? You must. You know the only other place where that verb must is used in the New Testament? Chapter 3 of the Gospel of John where Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be, does anybody know, born again. Isn't that interesting? Just as a saved person must be born again, so he or she must go through trials as one takes a stand for him. Interesting. But it's so worth it. Even when we go to those places of discomfort, those places of awkwardness, if you're settled in your hope, you're protected. He makes that clear going back to verse 3. Really, in three ways you're protected. First of all, you're protected by his grace. It says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy, sometimes it said it is by his immense grace, that we have been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. So we're protected by his grace, but we're also protected by the life beyond death that we will all celebrate. You go to the next verse, verse 4. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance. I've always loved Peter's image of inheritance as salvation. Jesus died, and we inherit something that we don't deserve. 
an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. In other words, that salvation and that life beyond death is sealed for you. It's there. It's waiting for you. So don't just rejoice because of that. Realize you are protected no matter what happens, and you're going to be fine for me to live as Christ and to die as what, did he say? Gain? So you're protected by his grace. You're protected by life after death. And finally, you're protected by the protection of faith itself, faith that knows what your future will be, even beyond the trials and suffering. Go to the next verse. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. You're protected by all of that and more. He goes on to say in verses 6 and 7 that your faith is more precious than gold. It's more precious than gold or anything else earthly because it's what will get you through the entirety of this life, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. But then you go to verses 8 and 9. Let's read that. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, and by the way, it says you love him, literally it says, uh, though you have not laid your eyes on him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious and expressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. You've never seen him, but you will one day. And I think it's kind of cool that we share the same experience as the people who got this letter from Peter. None of them had seen Jesus, but think of Peter. Peter was one of the sole surviving eyewitnesses to Jesus who knew him. And he's saying, I've seen him, and I trust, you've got to trust me, you will someday. It was in the upper room that Jesus said after he rose, what blessed are those who have not seen and yet what? Believe. And think about it, Peter was there. <laughs> Peter was there in the upper room. He saw that, he heard Jesus say that, and now he's basically echoing what Jesus had to say. So can you believe without seeing? Can you expect the fact that I don't see him yet, but I know he's there, and one day I'm going to meet him? Can you do that? It reminds me of an interesting story. It's something that we're two days away from its anniversary, something that happened on February 9th, 1979. Anybody heard the story about the Jim Twins? This is just crazy. Um, the Jim Twins, they were born August 19, 1939 at Pequa Memorial Hospital in Ohio to an unwed 15-year-old immigrant. And she immediately put them both up for adoption. And they were separated four weeks later, separated from each other. One was adopted by Ernest Springer and his wife Sarah, and they brought him home to Pequa there in Pequa, Ohio. Second boy was adopted a week later by Jess Lewis and his wife Lucille, and they lived in Lima, Ohio. Both sets of parents named their son Jim, kind of interesting, Jim Springer and Jim Lewis. Well, the New York Times reported neither the Springers nor the Lewises ever met the 15-year-old unwed mother of their sons, and both couples were told that their adoptive child had a twin who had died at birth, okay? But there were some small suggestions, just some intuitive stuff going on within those two gems that made them think, I wonder if I have a brother. And for 37 years, they wondered about that. Never seen each other, didn't know each other existed, but wondered if so for some mysterious reason. And for 37 years, they wondered. And finally, at age 39, Jim Lewis, one of the two, decided to take up the search to see if he really had a brother. He just thought that the time was right. And then nearly 40 years after their birth, as he did some detective work, the identical twin brothers were reunited. They were reunited, the twin Jims, uh, on February 9th, 1979, almost 37 years ago today, actually, at Springer's home. And they both said the same thing, apparently, when they first saw each other. Together, they said, I don't know what to say. But there's more to it. Um, 
They were obviously both elated and thankful, but again, the Jim twins shared much more than this genetic makeup and a given name. This is weird. Each married, then divorced a woman named Linda. Their second wives were both named Betty. Each grew up with an adopted brother named Larry. During childhood, each owned a dog named Toy, T-O-Y. They they each named their dogs Toy. Chances of that. Their firstborn sons are named James Allen Lewis and James Allen Springer. Both had law enforcement training. Both worked part-time as deputy sheriffs. They shared many common interests, mechanical drawing, block lettering, and carpentry. Favorite school subject was math. Spelling was their least favorite. They vacationed at the same three-block-long beach near St. Petersburg, Florida, both getting there and back in a Chevrolet. (laughs) Jim Springer said, was quoted in the New York Times saying, it it was just downright spooky when we found out all this. And then the other, Jim Lewis, said, we even used the same slang words. You know, they finally met after nearly 40 years. One brother, never having seen the other, wondering if he was out there, really believing that he was and really loving him, but not ever having seen him. And then they were reunited. And I think about us because we have a hope that's even greater than that. Because we've been adopted into the family of grace, we have an elder brother whose name is Jesus. And one day, having faced so many trials, we will see him face to face in a joyful confrontation. But it's interesting because like the Jim twins, we'll also share something in common with this elder brother Jesus. What we're going to find out when we meet him is how amazingly common our interests are with his. Our common interests are his common interests, things that concern him, concern us. He's been with us all along, even though we loved him but had never seen him. Hebrews 12 talks about running the race, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And I find that interesting. You know, though we've never seen him face to face yet, we will one day. Now, he came face to face with the cross. And he did that on our behalf, as Hebrews said. He scorned the shame of the cross because of the joy that was set before him, and likewise for us. He did that for us. Keep your eyes on that kind of Lord. And he's the one who can help fan the flame of the Spirit within you. And I hope, God, help us that maybe this year we might be a little more consistently discomforted, consistently uncomfortable, consistently awkward, in a way that so many across the globe are so much more for the sake of bringing the gospel to others. Let's pray together. Almighty God, teach us to be the disciples you want us to be, the self-disciplined people, but all the more help us to be the missional people, the missionaries you want us to be, proclaiming your love and proclaiming it with self-discipline along with power and love. Dare us, O God, to go to places that are slightly difficult for us, where we feel like we're just stumbling along, and yet help us to trust that your Spirit will work in and through us And help us to do so realizing we haven't seen you yet, but one day we will. And our hope and prayer is that one day you will tell us we did well as your servants. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 